Hello revelers. So this is another long one and I'm going to just get right to it with a quick introduction. So on this episode is Rome Vaharo. He calls himself a futurist. I call him a visionary. We're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to go back to the 80s and then we're going to go to the beginning of the 2000s and when the internet was starting and talk about how revolutionary it was and still is and how it spurred into him the desire to get into the tech world. Rome Vaharo is an entrepreneur, an inventor, designer. Uh, He calls himself a madman and I would agree. (laughs) And he is also a friend and he gives the best definition of the difference between coincidence and serendipity that I have heard yet. Please stick around to the end because you'll find out how to get involved with Rome's ventures if you are so inclined. As always, there's good information on the show notes too. And in fact, Rome has created for just us revelers a special 11-part mini little YouTube series about how his new internet platform is going to work. So please go to the show notes, follow that link, and play all of the YouTube videos that he made for us. So without further ado, here's Rome Vaharo. Hello, and welcome to Revel Revel. This is Lauren Drabble, and today I have probably one of my oldest friends in the whole world, because we've known each other forever, Rome Vaharo. Hello. Was that my cue to say hello? <laughs> it, is. Right. hello. it is. Hello, hello. In an in a Oprah kind of a Rome Vaharo. <laughs> so I generally don't remember how I meet people. I have some vague memories about you and I hope that they're right. And I hope that you will jump in and correct me if they're wrong and fill in any blanks. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm flattered. You think I have that kind of credibility with my memory, but it will do. Okay. So Rome, we met at Paul and six high school in New Jersey. Yes. When I was a freshman and you were a sophomore, correct? Yes. And that was my exiting year actually was the year that I moved back to Los Angeles because my I'm originally from California. So that was my last year in New Jersey. So, okay. But how did we meet at Paul the Six? Because you were a sophomore. I was a freshman. We didn't have any classes together. Do you remember anything of how we actually met? There was, you know, there was the school cafeteria, right? Yes. Uh, I remember me being a hop around kind of like a social butterfly. You know, I would always like go from table to table and say hi to people and, you know, flirt wherever the opportunity, you know, would would lead. So I'm assuming we met in the cafeteria. Either one of us or both of us was doing that thing, right? Hobby around table to table saying hi to new and different people, I would assume. Okay. So I kind of would assume that as well. So we'll just, we'll just make that the truth. Okay. So, (laughs) so how do we go from being perfect strangers, meeting in the cafeteria to going around school, telling everyone we're brother and sister? Oh, that's right. (laughs) <laughs> Jesus, I don't even remember that part. I mean, I do now that you said it. Oh my, you just brought back a whole flood of, a whole flood of memories with me on that one. <laughs> Tell me everything you remember, because I that's probably it. It's probably all I remember. I think uh, both of us were kind of like, you know, in our own ways, outcasts, mm. right? In, in, the, in the sense that 
I, I knew like where my head was and where my mind was and where I wanted to be. It didn't seem like it was kind of represented, <laughs> certainly at, at that school and in, and in New Jersey. And I, yeah, I just remember there was, a, there was a degree of like excitement in our friendship where there was like, I definitely remember feeling some sort of kindred spirits, right? Because of that. I, you know, when I was in high school, I was not like everyone, right? But I was just incredibly freaked out and insecure and, and unhappy. So there was, there was a camaraderie that you and I had. And I just think it was just like, you know, you had one of those kinds of like minds that was kind of out of place in Jersey. I did. And we, maybe we both just kind of looked at each other as. I kind of feel like it must be true though. I know that we would tell people that we were, we had different moms, but same dad. Oh my God. You're blowing my mind right now. Like I'm remembering all this as you're saying, I'm just like, yeah, yes, Jesus. And, and the balls that particularly that I had in saying this to people, because there were people that I went to school with for four years prior to this, who should have said bullshit. Why hasn't this ever come up before? And yet I think we convinced most of them. That is, that is so that's yeah. You're you're really opening a lot of memory doors for me right now. That's pretty, awesome. pretty wild. So why Paul the sixth? I don't think you're Catholic. No, not not Catholic at all. My mother just for whatever reason, because she was not Catholic either, right? So she had a completely different, you could say, ideology than Catholicism. My mother just felt it was a good idea to send us to private schools and Catholic schools. I was going to Catholic school since first grade. So I had, uh-huh. even though I was not a Catholic, I still feel like I was raised Catholic because I was going to their schools since first grade. Okay. Okay. I got you. Well, I know the one thing for sure that we bonded over was the fact that my freshman year is when my mom got into a really bad car accident and then wanted to move away from, as she put it, I want to move away from weather. So she was picking <laughs> things like Arizona or California, and we ended up in San Diego. So you knew you were going back to California. I, at some point at the end of freshman year, knew I was going to California. And I guess we became pen pals because I kind of remember writing letters back and forth a little bit. That's right. Oh, my God. I remember all this now, too. I can't believe. But I remember my senior year of high school friend of mine was going up for a college interview up in LA and said, do you want to go along? And I said, sure. And I thought I'll tell Rome that I'm coming and maybe we can see each other. We met up, like we hung out in LA and I believe you took me to the pizza parlor where they filmed a scene from Ferris Bueller. Oh my God. This is, I can't believe I, the, the first few years I was out of high school, I was so wild and doing so much crazy stuff like it's it's that whole period 18 19 20 right is very 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 blurry for me right and then we lost touch until facebook started like you know almost 20 years later so that's everything i remember wow well you remember a lot a lot more thank you actually for (laughs) bringing back some of those memories so you went back out to california to get into acting correct well no, no i mean at the time, right, when I was a teenager, I, because both my parents were actors. So like my whole life as a child was having this kind of like fantasy of being an actor because being an actor to me was 
you're not living in New Jersey anymore, <laughs> for, <laughs> first off. And, and it just was, it seemed like a very, very exciting life. But no, I went back to Los Angeles to live with my father because my father lives here. My grandmother was here. My sister's here, right? So I, I, I went back to Los Angeles to be with my family. And of course, in the hopes that I was going to, you know, become an actor. And, you know, I think my fantasies were probably very silly at the time, but I, you know, wanted to be like a movie star and an actor. But, you know, by the time I was, I forget how old I was, but it was like maybe 19, 20, 21, I realized acting was not for me, right? Like it was not something that, a way of life that I was interested in. I was actually way more interested in like making music and stuff like that. Okay. So you realize you'd prefer the music. What kind of music or what were you thinking? Because I don't think you play any instruments, do you? Oh, wow. Okay. So that's a whole, this is a, this is a whole other wild story. So music was what I always really wanted to do. And, you know, my mother, my mother was a, you know, she was a star in Broadway and she was also like a concert pianist and like incredibly over the top personality, huge, large, larger than life personality. But my mother had so much disappointment from pursuing this path of the arts and being a performer and things like that, that she had a very negative connotation with anything that was a creative life. So at a very young age, I, oh my God, I remember just so begging my mother to learn how to play the piano, like third, fourth grade. And she wouldn't let me, which is strange for a parent, right? So my mother really saw, we were very similar in a lot of ways. And I think she saw a lot of, of her in me, but the, the part of herself that she saw in me was the part of herself that I think brought her a lot of pain down the line in life. And I think she just really wanted to protect me, but it wound up being not healthy what she was doing, right? Because she was like just suppressing a child. So I always, music was very important to me, but I never learned how to play an instrument. So how did I get involved with music? Well, basically when I uh, came back to Los Angeles, you know, there was a very exciting musical environment here in LA. And at the time, hip hop was just emerging as a musical genre. And I was like, I had like a few friends from high school and we hung out after high school and actually into these things that really weren't that popular yet, like hip hop and rap from New York City, the music from London and the UK. And the cool thing about that kind of music is that you didn't necessarily have to learn how to play an instrument. So I had like, oh man, I just love music so much. I, and I would hear so much music in my head, but I always felt frustrated because I didn't know how to play an instrument. So I don't know why I chose, but I actually, I made a decision because I was going to go to college. I really wanted to be a psychologist in terms of like an academic pursuit. Like I was really, really drawn to psychology and I had to make a decision in my life. Do I want to be a psychologist or do I want to make music? And I was, you know, in whatever, 19, 20, 21, and I'm in Los Angeles, and I just want to like hang out with girls and, you know what I mean? Those kinds of fun things. And, and music, just a life of making music and pursuing music just seemed a lot more exciting than pursuing an academic career, which was not a necessarily a rational decision I made, but that was the decision I made. And I just jumped in and started making music because this was the early era of hip hop. And there was things like sampling and you know you didn't even have to sing right you could rap and you know this so this whole period was like you know me and my friend we would go around to all these clubs in LA because the Beastie Boys weren't even 
super popular yet. People just know that there was these white B-boys called the Beastie Boys. And people thought we were the Beastie Boys because we were like the only white kids who are into like <laughs> hip hop and rap. So we would get into all these nightclubs for free and pretend that wow. we were the Beastie Boys. So it was just really fun, silly time. But I just went all in. I was like, no, I'm making music. I'm making music. And I put together a 12-piece band. Wow. That was my first excursion to making music. Didn't know how to play an instrument, but just found myself putting together this huge band and so all of the 90s for me was just all about music and music career. And I eventually got a record deal with EMI. Oh, okay, cool. And in a way, this is kind of a segue into the collapse of my music career is kind of what led to the experience I wanted to talk to you about, actually. Well, you know, at the serendipity, you know, that's why I wanted to show you Aki Wiki. I wanted to show you what that, how that worked and what that concept was. So when my music career collapsed, I had this huge record deal with EMI. And I was also a filmmaker at the time. Music and then making movies. That's where I had a lot of like just wild creative energy. That was my plan in life. And I would work really, really hard. And every single year I would find myself, yeah, like I'm getting that closer to my goal. That was much closer. So after 9-11, so 9-11 really messed with my head because I'm sure like the whole world, but I was like never in a million years, I thought we were moving in a direction of something that horrible. I thought the future was just so bright and wide. And I had a record deal. I was also making this independent feature leak film. And after 9-11, both those things got canceled. Uh -huh. So I remember like waking up and I was in production on this film and I was waiting for my album to come out. And I had a girlfriend at the time and I was woken up in the morning and said, oh my God, these planes crashed into the World Trade Center. And it, I just, from that moment on, it was just like, I felt like it changed my entire psychology I, in a way I, I didn't understand. I was felt so affected. And then shortly thereafter, EMI, not related to 9-11, not directly related, but you know, EMI collapsed and said, hey, listen, your album that we're going to put out, we're not going to put it out now. And the, the production that I was working on in this like a uh, little indie feature, was working on it for six months. They pulled production in halfway in the middle of the production. So I had like at the time, it was like my own twin towers of like music and filmmaking that I was working so hard for also came tumbling down. And I found myself at a place in life that was like my worst fear. What I thought was like the real launch of my career. Like I think I, like I won a, a few short film awards. Like everything was just, I thought was going so perfect for me in my life. And then all of a sudden I just didn't realize what I was going to do next in my life. Really crushing moment. And this is like the year 2002. And all of a sudden, wow, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? Like I've been working so hard for 10 years and it was and now ended. And I realized I really don't have any sense of what it's like to be a professional in this world. And my whole life, I was kind of like enabled to be, you know, when you're a musician, you are enabled to be a flaky person <laughs> in life, <laughs> right? Like no one, you know, when you're late to a meeting, Everyone knows you're going to be late to the meeting before you even show up. So I just didn't have a sense of anything professional in the world. But also, this was the early days of the internet. And I was really, of course, just like fascinated by the internet. And of course, I had a computer, but didn't really know what to do with it. And at the same time, this is a really like reflective period in you know, just in, in our country, in the world, because the year 2002, everyone is like reflecting on 9-11. And like, holy shit, like what's going to happen to the world, right? And it's, God, like 20 years later, I, I wish we had the world now that we had, you know, in 2002. But it just, everything just seemed like we have to really 
think about solving problems. And I didn't know what the right thing to do was just in terms of, in terms of like, what should our response be? And I just wasn't sure. And for the, for the first time in my life, I was like, I felt I was really aware. I really wanted to understand what was going on and whatever was the best thing to do to help it, like it, the situation or in the world or whatever to make it all better. I wanted to explore it and be a part of that, but I didn't know what it was. So, Go ahead, can I pause you there? Yeah. So what I find, let's just say suspicious <laughs> is that the rug gets pulled out from under you. Yeah. Everything that you've been working so hard for, for like 10 years is taken away. Yep. Didn't you get depressed or have like a crisis of confidence or, you know, something in your personal life before you started thinking, how do we help the world? Or did you really legitimately jump into that? Well, I was always into that, right? So that time in my life too, I don't know if you know who Buckminster Fuller is. I know that name and I can't think of why I know that name right now. Well, Buckminster Fuller is my ultimate hero. I think he's, there's Bucky and then, then, then there's Jesus and Buddha, right? So Bucky Fuller was a, he was like an inventor and an architect, and he's also the inventor of the geodesic dome. And he, oh. he had this concept of a design revolution. This is in the early middle part of the 20th century. So he had these really exciting ideas. One of the ideas that was really exciting to me was he had this concept of the world game. And the world game was this process, this methodology that he designed for governments to use and this process would enable governments to essentially game resources in a manner where resources become accessible to everyone at a very high level. And he called it total success for all without disadvantaging any. And sure. that we have the technology and we have the ability to create a global environment where everyone in the world has access to billionaire levels of wealth. And I was just so blown away by that idea. So th th it, none of this was new to me. I was always like, I identify myself as like a futurist kind of person, right? Like, wow, the future is so incredible. And, you know, like there's all these amazing things out there. I thought the world would slowly evolve to that. I never expected the world to be attacked by forces that, you know what I mean, would really step on ideas like that and want to crush them. So that's why I think 9-11 to me was... You know, that year 9-11 happened and me losing my record deal and the film, all that stuff, I was horribly depressed. And for the first time, I was I remember going through, I guess it was like an anxiety and feeling confused that my friends didn't understand. But right. so I was, I was in a, a very kind of dark place of like depression. But inside of that, I would find these like just moments of inspiration or I don't know, relief of some kind. And that was really through re-familiarizing myself with Bucky Fuller, you know, because at the time I was going, what political force do I want to be united with in this world, basically, to whatever the best thing to do is, I will do it. I just don't know what that best thing is. And I want to be really clear and really understand what that best thing is. So for the first time in my life, I was open. You know, I was just very open-minded. Like I was basically, my mind was open enough to completely change my life if necessary. What wound up happening is I began to work with a really dear friend of mine who kind of wanted to 
take all that wild creativity I had. And he hired me to write some screenplays. And so this began to like give me some kind of, this is all still in 2002. So I began to do a lot of creative writing. I, God, I think I wrote like five or six screenplays, like in the, within a period of like a few months, right? Just a, I would write a first draft in like two weeks. That's how much creativity I had at the time. Feeling all this hope again, we found ourselves in this very petty squabble, really petty and insignificant. But the way he started to negotiate his problem with me is not what we had the disagreement about. It was like the steps he took to kind of control the situation. He fired me. <laughs> so in 2002, after I lost my, you know, music and film, it was kind of resuscitated by my friend who then turned around and fired me a few months thereafter. When that happened, I prepared myself to go into a really deep depression really really <laughs> okay wait 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 i've never heard anyone say i prepared myself to go into a deep depression <laughs> well it's true <laughs> um, like like you're going on a trip so <laughs> let's let's pick that apart because that's fascinating sure. um <laughs> well at the time you know in my life this is you know when i was of course i was a lot younger and i used to party a lot i wouldn't never would say I was like a drug addict or an alcoholic, that kind of party, um, like hope to die party and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I was out and about in LA and had fun. I knew enough about myself that I would go through my own moody periods. Not a, like a bipolar thing, but just I knew that if something really disappointing happened to me, that I would react by getting sad and depressed or getting anxiety over it. So everything that I've worked on my whole life is gone now. And so what else would I prepare myself to do? Of course, I would prepare myself to go into a depression, but that's not what happened. And honestly, this is where the story gets interesting. So it's 2002 and it's December of 2002. And I go through this whole like realization that my friend was lying to me a lot. So all of a sudden I had this person in my life who not only fired me, which was in my mind, my last remaining hope of a career, right? What I was doing. But he was also going around to people in my circle and kind of putting some kind of blame on me to deflect, you know, whatever damage he felt. So I was just like, oh my God, this is just the worst thing. And I, I go home and I literally, I'm preparing myself to go into this depression. I go, here it goes. Okay, I'm going to go into this depression. I almost like surrendered <laughs> to the depression. And then all of a sudden, Instead, I find myself going into this place of like hyper clarity and all this like energy that I had was feeling in my body that I would normally associate with like some type of anxiety or depression. It began to get so intense in a motivational way. And for some reason, <laughs> all of these ideas that I was learning from Buckminster Fuller, I, this doesn't make even make any sense this, from this point on, but I started to experience all these synchronicities in this really interesting, exciting way. So while I was expecting to go into this depression, it's like I'm discovering this kind of new part of my mind almost and where that is coming from. Because what I haven't told you is in the background in 2002, you know, we're starting to prepare to go to war and invade Iraq. And, you know, this was such a new time in our history. Like, whoa, we're, we're going to go to war like we did in Vietnam. So I was so fascinated by the internet, I began to protest going to war on the internet. 
So like while I was dealing with my own struggles, anxiety or depression from losing everything, I was filling up that time and space with trying to understand why people thought going to war over weapons of mass destruction was a good idea. So this is this underlying thing kind of going on in the story. I start to find this kind of refuge in these conversations that I was having. And I was realizing that I was actually learning a lot of things in these conversations. And I began to look at having a discussion on the internet is this amazing new medium. Cause I was, a, you know, at the time I was a screenwriter and this is early days in the internet. There's of course no social networks. They don't even exist yet. But what does exist are these BBS, right? Bulletin board systems. And I was fascinated by like these discussions, like in the way you could have a discussion on the internet. Like I was, this is totally different than what we're used to. Someone says what they're going to say and you can reply to them, but their words are still recorded. And to me, it looked like a screenplay. Like, I don't know if you remember the early BBS. It almost looks like a screenplay, how dialogue is written. Yeah. Now that you mention it, I can remember that. Yeah. yeah. And I was so blown away by that. So I thought that there was something new here to explore as a writing medium, just being creative with this new medium, like looking at an, a discussion form as theater. And I wanted to apply that to protesting the war. And so it was just like, here's this new medium. You know, I'm not doing anything with my life right now. And I think going to war in Iraq is a really dumb idea. And I was really inspired by Buckminster Fuller. So all these things that I'm trying to describe, right, began to form these amazing serendipities and synchronicities. And it just changed my life and blew my mind. So there was one day, I remember the exact day, right, because it was December 21st, 2002. But I was feeling all this yeah, like we can, you know, stop this war before it starts. And maybe there's the first time in history we can do that because of the internet, right? So I had that kind of uh, energy. One of the most interesting synchronicities that I was experiencing that day around these numbers of zero, one, and two, I would just start to see these numbers everywhere. But I started to just experiencing all these synchronicities with these numbers, zero, one, and two, you know, like, for example, I walked outside and the bus that drove by where I lived every single day was like, you know, line 202. And uh, I would buy something at a store and the receipt, like all you know, the totals would all some uh, use the number zero, one or two. It was just ex extensively experiencing the synchronicity to the point I felt like I, someone was playing a joke. On. And I remember going home, sitting down on my computer and the number pad, the zero, one and two the, on the number pad was depressed. Like, you know, if you have like a, a dirty keyboard, right? And some sticky gets underneath a number and it gets depressed. The numbers zero, one, two were even depressed on my keyboard. And that just blew, I was like, what the, like, what is depressing these numbers on my keyboard right now? And then my aunt called me for me. She's like, hey, you know, I just want to wish you a happy winter solstice. Oh, and she right, told yeah. me it was the winter solstice. I was like, it is. And then the date was like December 21st, 2002. Again, all zero ones and twos. And it was just so extraordinary, all these synchronicities. And I had to realize that I had no answer. I, I had no answer for these synchronicities. I didn't have like a belief system to fit them into. But I realized where they were coming from. And that there was something, the second I said, you know what? I don't know why I'm having all these synchronicities right now, but they're, they are meaningful to me. And what I realized is in that moment where I was in this kind of state of like hyper clarity, I realized that there was this very natural, harmonious place 
that the part of me that was thinking, that internal process of thinking, and then the part of me that's feeling, that internal process of feeling, they were in harmony. Like for the first time in my life, naturally occurring harmony. It's like I'm not attributing anything to it. It's just my own thinking, my own feeling. It was so incredible to have them both be in harmony and both kind of win. And I realized that my whole life, like I was struggling. I had basically this inner competition that I was not even really conscious of. And it was this inner competition between my own thinking self and my feeling self. Now, I don't know what the best words for those things are, the intuitive side and the analytical side, right? I just knew it in a very simple way, thinking and feeling. And that there was this place where my own thinking and feeling could create such an inner harmony. And because it was natural, it would naturally begin to harmonize with anything harmonious outside of me. So this was like my experience. And I'm like seeing this happen. So synchronicity, it was like, that is what that day was for me. It was even understanding what synchronicity even is, right? Like why synchronicity is synchronicity and not coincidence, right? Coincidence is, you know, you're wearing a yellow shirt and you go to a party and there's three other people wearing a yellow shirt, right? Like, wow, what a coincidence. How cool. But that's not what synchronicity is. Synchronicity is when you're having this internal, very meaningful experience, and it's only meaningful to you, and it could be irrational. It doesn't even have to even make sense. It doesn't matter. you having this really meaningful, profound inner experience, and then all of a sudden, the outside world reflects that experience back to you in a way that doesn't seem possible. Like, it doesn't seem possible to have the number 012 depressing my keyboard that day. Like to this day, I remember waking up the next morning and seeing if those numbers were still depressed and they weren't. Uh-huh. They weren't depressed. So that's the zero, 01 or 2 in my mind, I don't know. I have to accept that I don't know. And that's just, it's just a mystery to me. And the second that that happened in my mind, Everything that could potentially be something true in the world or something not true began to take on also this hyper clarity. And I realized that it was me accepting something that I really just didn't know, but I'm an artist. I'm a writer. So I'm not just going to treat what I don't know as just unknown. It's mystery. Even though it's something that's unknown, it's such a profound mystery that it inspires me. It inspires me to want to understand it more. It inspires me to want to explore it more, whatever it is, create with it more. And so the synchronicity that I was experiencing that day, it didn't stop for three months. At the time, I do not want to say that I was an atheist because I certainly was not an atheist. But I also was someone at the time who did not trust or like religion. So I was very kind of down on religion. And, you know, I was very open-minded and, you know, I did cool esoteric stuff like Aikido. Aikido was a big part, it still is a big part of my life. I just didn't have any, any way to, you know, attribute any of this. So just, you know, accepting like this mystery and seeing how just by me accepting that there's something here that I'm experiencing. So I know it's real. Like I know, maybe I can't convince someone else it's real, but I know for me, I know for certain that I'm experiencing this right now. I just don't know what it is. And just having that simple understanding just opened up so much. And I just continued down this path. So I was taking all these conversations about going to war on the internet. And then I'm realizing that these conversations that I was having 
these people who I don't even know that I'm meeting on the internet. And this is exciting to me because this, the internet's new. And I can have a conversation with someone on the other side of the world. I can talk to people who are in like in India, you know what I mean? South America. I mean, that was at the time just like unbelievably fantastic that you could do something like that. And I'm realizing that what I thought were conversations about going to war and weapons of mass destruction, like the country was not able to look at weapons of mass destruction as a mystery at the time. And all these arguments were like, no, they're really there. And then on the other side, no, they're not. It's bullshit. But we weren't having this conversation. Well, we don't know if they're there. And maybe not knowing is a way to devise a strategy here. So these conversations that I was having randomly with people, they were also bringing these ideas into, a, into the conversation very serendipitously. And these things that these random people were seeding this conversation with were helping me to that realization. And I realized that having a conversation online is different than having a conversation in the real world. So th this all came spontaneously, right? I had no plan. There was zero plan. It was just like pure inspiration, pure creativity. And I began to form this document that was already forming from these conversations. And this document was like a, like a media object, but it was designed to stop the war before it started. I realized that there was a way to have a conversation about the existence of weapons of mass destruction that kind of would expose if someone was having that conversation and they were thinking rationally, or if they were just being irrational, like they were just repeating propaganda or just things that weren't true. So this document became this document about how to have a conversation about going to war in Iraq. And anyone could write in this document, following the rules of the document. So it was this kind of crude, theatrical, collaborative editing, spontaneous concept. Like Wikipedia was not even on my radar at the time. Wikipedia, I don't even think was launched. But basically it was this really kind of organic way to have this conversation on the internet about something important that was very creative. And all that this document was, was rules about how we would have a conversation. And this was just a series of serendipitous and synchronistic conversations from December 21st, 2002, until we went to war, March 19th, 2003. And this entire period is just, I look back on it today and I just can't fathom. I mean, it's so extraordinary. It changed my life so much. And it was in that moment on December 21st, 2002, I saw very clearly how to do something like I showed you last week. But before we get into that, because there are people who have no idea what Aikido is. And Aikido, you said Aikido. Aikido, Aikido. Thank you. If you can explain to people how you got into that, what it means, because that will give people a another introduction into Akiwiki. So, oh, about Aikido. Yes. So Aikido is a big piece of what was kind of going on with me at that time, especially psychologically. I was only doing Aikido for maybe about a year or two. And Aikido is a Japanese martial art. And it is the only martial art in the world that has a very specific martial strategy that seems kind of counterintuitive at first, but it's this nonviolent martial art. Like Aikido, Aiki is like this harmony 
that you are applying to war as a strategy. And so I'm learning, and Aikido is very hard. It's probably one of the hardest martial arts to learn. It probably takes way too long to even think about using Aikido as real self-defense. But Aikido is, has this philosophy about conflict. And the core philosophy of Aikido is that when someone wants to violently attack someone, they're crazy. They're irrational. They think that they're going to be able to solve a problem that in a way that they really can't. It's not possible. So they're trying to attack the universe. That's how the, the founder would describe it. Someone is in this violent state, they have a problem, and they're going to attack the universe thinking that's going to help them solve their problem. So Aikido's martial strategy is one, uh, never attack someone, of course, first. If someone is confronting you in a violent situation, give them an opening to attack you. So like say, hey, yeah, you can you know, hit me here or here. And you let that person strike. But when that person goes to commit their attack to you, you've trained 10,000 times, right, for that particular attack. And you're going to, in a very relaxed fashion, you're going to throw that person and in a way that you're going to prevent them from harming themselves. So this is very important. The intention of the person, the Akidoka, is make sure this person does not hurt themselves while they're trying to kill you. And so Aikido is, is a very psychological martial art. And the reason for that is because when someone is trying to kill you and they deliver an attack and you're able to get them off of their center of gravity, so they're basically about to fall, in that moment, that attacker projects what they're doing onto the Akidoka. They think that the Akidoka is trying to kill them, but the Akidoka isn't. The Akidoka intentionally is trying to move them out of harm's way. So there's a reason why the attacker delivers that projection, because the Akidoka is essentially attacking someone with harmony. Basically, he's attacking someone, but the attack is comprised of something that can do them no harm. And someone who's trying to kill someone can't conceive of that. It's impossible. So they're just faced with their own projection. They think they're about to die when they're attacking someone. That is the martial strategy of Aikido. And I was really just blown away by this strategy. I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like what a fascinating, brilliant type of approach to conflict. And what wound up happening, because that was such a big part of my physical practice, is that process that exists in Aikido began to come into this process of having an online conversation where people are violently, verbally attacked. But there's a way to have a conversation with someone like that where you can kind of neutralize what they're saying verbally. You can see, you can make a very clear distinction in terms of like what the truth <laughs> that this person is coming at. Are they, you know, irrational? Are they making all these crazy contradictions with reality? So there's a way to deal with verbal confrontation in a manner that is identical to that of Aikido. And that was just super clear to me in that moment. And that was the way to kind of approach the situation online. And you got into that before or after 9-11? I got into Aikido before 9-11. So I was doing, oh. Aikido, yeah, I would say the year 2000, I started practicing. Yeah, it was, I remember it was after the, you know, the year 2000, right? That was, my, that was my resolution. I knew enough about Aikido that there's, in the world of martial arts, there's internal martial arts. There's martial arts that use a different type of physical conditioning to approach conflict and Tai Chi is one of them. So I think in China, there's like four internal martial arts, only four. And the only internal martial art 
that is not from China is Aikido. So, you know, before we concentrate on Akiwiki, before we get to the now, I want to just sort of look back because this whole thing, if you if you have like the 30,000 foot view of your life and you see like these things weaving throughout, you said that you were not religious, kind of anti-religion, but you seem to have always been a seeker and very spiritual and open to these things. And I'm just wondering what you remember of that whole process and how much you actually felt open and like you were seeing these things happen or if later you figured it out or, you know, how, how all of this evolved. That's really such an amazing question. So the reason why I say at the time I was not a fan of religion, right? This is also after 9-11, all this religious fundamentalism. But at the same time, I'm having these ex- this extraordinary ongoing experience in synchronicity, which makes no sense. But I find this comfort in not knowing. So I, in hindsight, right, I, when I look back and going through that experience, I realize I could have interpreted that many different ways, depending upon what I believed. So for example, if I was someone who was you know, into a lot of, and I'm not, I don't mean to sound this in a derogatory way, but someone who was into, let's say, like a lot of like new age concepts, and let's say a lot of them could be very flaky too. I could see how I could say, oh yeah, I channeled something, right? I don't, I don't think that, but I'm just saying is I could see how my, my mind could, could give me that interpretation depending upon what I believed. Or let's say if I, if I was a religious person, I could see how my mind could have interpreted that experience like another way. But I was having what I'm sure many would consider to be this profound spiritual experience. But what was grounding me in that was me not knowing what it was. Okay, I don't know what this is. This is amazing. It's beautiful. And I don't have to know what it is. As a matter of fact, maybe that's kind of the point. And because I'm also doing this, you know, (laughs) crazy, you know, war protest with this document, getting people to discuss (laughs) you know, going to war around weapons of mass destruction. So during this three-month time, whoever I was having a conversation with, whatever their ideology was, I was able to have this kind of profound experience of their own ideology because this whole process that I'm exploring having these internet communications over is about learning how to see what each other means. So, you know, I am having this uh, conversation with someone, let's say, who's a Christian. And they're able to find something harmoniously true with what, they, with what they believe, even though I'm not a Christian, I can actually see what they mean now. And so I found myself having different kinds of conversations with different types of, you know, ph- philosophical or religious people, not just religious, but specifically at the time. I remember having this conversation with someone who was Christian, was really into these really like deep philosophical conversations about uh, essentially what is now Akiwiki. And they, one, they found it so useful and so helpful for them understanding their own religion that I just, I began to have this beautiful experience with Christianity. It was, I don't know how to describe it. It was, you know, momentary, right? It, It was, you know, that day. But it was just really beautiful kind of visionary kind of experience about Christianity. And then I would have the same thing with someone who was a Muslim. And then the same thing with someone who was Jewish. 
And then the same thing with someone who was Buddhist or something. And even with people who were like atheists and had, you know, different types of ideologies. So it was amazing that I thought, oh my God, like I using this process of really just listening to what each of us is saying and appreciating where there's a lot of shared truths in all these things, I was able to have these experiences in different religions, but I'm not those religions. <laughs> so that gave me a really profound respect of religion, right? And, and religious experience. So even though up until this year, I really prided myself in my own journey as being agnostic, because to me, agnostic was not like, I don't know what's going on. I don't care. To me, agnostic was, wow, I can be in the presence of this extraordinary, extraordinary thing that's both inside and outside of me. And I honestly don't know. I, I, I know that it's a mystery. I know that anything my mind tries to put on it one way or the other is just going to be a projection of my own self, my own mind. Whatever I say is true or false about it. It's just my own mind. And my mind really just can't grasp it. And, and that was a really kind of lovely place to be, this kind of agnosticism where you can acknowledge the mystery in its pure form and you don't have to know what the mystery is. And you're still somewhat suspended. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you can't even say it's religious. That's how mysterious it is. You can't even say it's spiritual. It's way stranger than spiritual, right? So looking at it in this kind of pure primordial state of mystery was... That was kind of like my own, I, I guess, I, you know, spirituality, I guess I would call it, or philosophy. Until this year, I became a Buddhist. <laughs> so me becoming a Buddhist obviously was not influenced by, well, I shouldn't say that, but it wasn't directly influenced by, by that period, right? Because I was just having all these beautiful experiences and I was learning really rapidly People who were, you know, I remember there was a lot of people who were in the Ayn Rand that I was speaking to at the time too, right? So I like even, doesn't matter what someone's viewpoints were, I would be able to really learn and see what they were saying. And that to me just became really the most exciting and important thing because that really is what we're doing here. Like everyone is, of course, is going to have their own ideas about this mystery, but it really doesn't matter what we believe it is if we can't bring it into a conversation with other people right? Like, it doesn't matter how, it, like, let's say, you know, I, wow, yeah, Lauren, I, this incredible spiritual experience and all these truths I have and da, 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 da. But I, all I do with that is just hold myself up with it and, you know, have a cult following of four or something. You know what I mean? It, it, it doesn't mean anything. It's really kind of meaningless until we can kind of bring it into conversation with another person and build a consensus with them. I'm so glad that you became Buddhist because if you weren't, I would have to say, dude, why not? <laughs> because you are so Buddhist in your thinking, in your talking. I almost wish we kind of had a comparison. If we could have had the same conversation before you became Buddhist, just to see if it's the exact same or how it it's is. different. It would, no, it would be exact, exactly the same. Because you have this sort of existential, esoteric almost LSD inducing way <laughs> talking about this where you're, you're hitting on the singularity, you're hitting on the oneness, you're hitting on the unifying principles behind everyone's life. 
with how they think, how they feel, how they talk to each other. So it's amazing to think that you could have ever not been Buddhist. Maybe you must have always worked. That's how how I felt this year. By the way, you know, this trail of synchronicity that started on, you know, December 21st, it never stopped 100%. That's what I call it, a trail of synchronicity, because, you know, I discovered synchronicity as this kind of like call to adventure, right? Or call to foolishness, right? Depending on how you want to approach it. But when you experience synchronicity, you know, right? You're having that internal experience. So you know, it's coming from your body. It's not just coming from your mind. It's coming from your body. And if you continue to follow that trail of synchronicity, it'll take you on a fun little journey. So there's moments, you know, even though I've never had anything close to that experience that I had almost 20 years ago. I do recognize it, right, when, that, when it does come up. So, yeah, it's continued to lead me throughout this entire project in ways that are synchronistically still just so amazingly uncanny. But the discovery of Buddhism this year was also part of that strange synchronicity, like in my life. Me, about two years ago, it was, yeah, two years ago now, I mean, right, I've been a pretty hyperactive entrepreneur, especially the past 10 years almost to the point of just becoming a cliche because classic entrepreneurial arc, throwing everything, going all in, losing everything. And these past two years were most challenging years of my life, right? So that's why when I look back 20 years ago, these events of like happening during 9-11, but this trail of synchronicity, like literally led me to discovering Buddhism this year in a really peculiar way. And I couldn't believe when I, it's not like I didn't know about Buddhism before, in particular, I'm speaking about Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. Okay, good. I'm glad I was going to ask that. What kind? Yeah. So this really incredible trail leads me to discover Tibetan Buddhism. And and Robert Thurman, I don't know if you know who Robert Thurman is. I credit him with actually converting me. So I had this really just profound experience with Tibetan Buddhism. When I had this experience, I was like, you know, I realized I don't know that much about Buddhism. <laughs> and I was like... Hmm, maybe I should try to understand what it is a little bit more. And I started listening to Robert Thurman's podcast. And I was like, I, I must listen to like 50 hours of, of podcasting. And I was just blown away. I was like, oh my God. It was almost like reverse synchronicity. Like, how could I not know all of this about Tibetan Buddhism from before? How could I not know this? Because I love studying all different types of religions and philosophies and just out of my own curiosities. And the things that are in Tibetan Buddhism are specifically the things that I have been the most interested in in my life. So for me, it was almost like, what, what are these strange serendipitous forces that kept me away from being a Buddhist my whole life? That's kind of what it felt like. It was like, how could I not want to know more about Buddhism? Because it felt so much like I, this is my whole life I've been. I I can totally see that. Yep. Yeah. And specifically around Akiwiki, because Akiwiki is very um, harmonious with obviously like a, like a Buddhist approach and especially like Vajrayana Buddhism is, is unique, right? It's a, it's tantric Buddhism. And there's this humongous, humongous psychological element going on. So just discovering that that actually exists, you know, in the system, it was amazing. This year has been so special to me because of discovering, discovering that. And I discovered that for myself. 
So it's not like I believe Tibetan Buddhism, everyone should be a Tibetan Buddhist and, or any of that. It was just amazing. This time in my life, for me to finally basically discover religion, right? Because I was never a religious person and really just appreciate that tradition and, and those practices and those prayers. Like I love theater. I come from a family of actors. So I love theater and spoken word and music and rituals. Are just, it's in my genes. So discovering all that, that side of Tibetan Buddhism where that theater is, is such an important component of, of Tantra, basically, uh, was a really amazing discovery for me this year. And I don't think many people know that I never would have thought theater and Buddhism. But I mean, yeah, there's ritual, there's spectacle, there's uh, myth. So yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, on a side note, we have a Buddhist center about 15 minutes from my house. So I'll, oh, wow. I'll put that in the show notes so that you can see, a, you know, if you happen to want to come and visit me and check out that center. But anyway, so going back to what you're saying, it sounds like that 2020, the year of COVID has actually worked out for you in many ways in the Akiwiki, in the Buddhist way. Yeah. Well, it's just following that serendipity trail. And the interesting thing is for me reflecting on 2020 is when I, this past decade, especially when I started to get really heavy in startup mode, where my thinking is now motivated by chasing money, this kind of monetary goal. And, you know, originally I'm thinking for good purposes, of course, right? But I really forgot about that trail of serendipity (laughs) that you can follow that can take you on a little adventure because, you know, I had to focus on brass tacks and figuring out how to, you know, sell a new product that's never existed before. And, you know, all these kinds of hard practical things. And I forgot about that serendipity trail. And unfortunately, I had to learn the hard way is that me forgetting about that serendipity trail doesn't mean the serendipity went away. Even though I was forgetting about that trail of serendipity, because I'm, I'm chasing the trail of money. The trail of serendipity is all around me saying, hey, whatever path you think you're going down that you've been working your ass off that you think you're winning at nope there is no path for you going down this path it's like so clear like hey nothing's gonna happen here it's not possible so having to watch the dark side of serendipity crush everything that i we were doing it just by weird twists of fate not because we weren't succeeding properly or we weren't doing creating good stuff, but because weird twists of fate were preventing this from happening. And me continually to hold on tight to that, try to force, oh no, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And me just not accepting the actual truth. And so 2020 was about me just finally going, okay, this path that I was going down doesn't work. There is all these incredible forces that literally made that impossible and just accepting that with COVID, right? So literally the final synchronicity was, I still think that I can salvage everything this year. I still think I can. And I figure out how to raise money with this friend of mine in this you know, clever way where I could bring in around $10,000 a week in some revenue, which would be enough money to get Native Smart, my other company back online and AkiWiki. So, because that was always my goal, right? To get AkiWiki online. So it, it's working. Like we launched this new business and I'm thinking this year, yes, 
I finally salvaged everything. And we launched that business the same week as COVID-19 launched in the world, basically. So COVID-19 was literally like, no, 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 nothing, nothing that you can do is going to salvage this. It's over. It's done. And now you have for the first time in 10 years, you have nothing to do. And it was in that place of having nothing to do that I started listening to Robert Thurman and uh, questioning, you know, questioning a lot of my own decision making, uh, rediscovering Buddhism, and then finishing the algorithm for AkiWiki. So what I showed you when, when I showed you AkiWiki, where I walked you through the psychological process that is that you can't argue with, that you can have two people who violently disagree on something, but there's a way to shape that conversation in such a way that you can turn a conversation, a disagreement into a win-win, not a win-lose. You know, that's a very rich mathematical psychological object, right? It's... I'm not that smart. I, I don't know game theory and paraconsistent logics and all that kind of stuff, but that is what is in AkiWiki. And I finished that algorithm this year and I never thought I was going to be able to finish that myself. I always thought that I would need a brilliant computer scientist or some kind of mathematician or something to finish it for me. And I finished it myself this year. So this like trail of serendipity it, there's a light side and a dark side to it, I guess, depending on your relationship with it. But it really came such full circle this year in a way where for the first time since the dawn of AkiWiki, I actually feel this kind of resolution and this kind of completion. And I'm really looking forward to this next stage in my life because of it. I mentioned when we were having our prep talk about how my job, maybe not job, but role, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, is to synthesize things. And from what you have said here today, it really seems to me that the, the bottom line between all of this synchronicity leading you up to AkiWiki is, and, and why now in 2020, is because the world is finally talking about how do we get over being so polarized? How do we come together? How do we become one as, as a nation or as a people or, you know, however the conversation is being framed that moment, as I was saying earlier, that you've, you figured out that oneness, that point of singularity for everyone. And I think it's just beautiful that someone who is sort of on the outside of the giant tech world has done it and has done it at the right time to combat what's going on in the world and to solve some of the problems that we all experience with being online, with social media, and dealing with the points that were brought up in the social dilemma. Yeah, that's, that's the other side of this, right? You know, and this is, I think this is why it was very important for me personally to discover kind of Buddhism this year, because, you know, just... Because, yeah, this is what's crazy. You know, I started this journey 20 years ago and was not a technologist, was, had no concept of business, irrational person, and go on this journey, which is fueled by serendipity, and then in the process of trying to make this real, 
I learned so much. I learned so much about media and technology. I start a career in media technology. I even have a company and I sell my first company. And this whole trail is me figuring out how to build OkiWiki and how to create some credibility for myself to launch something like OkiWiki. And if you would have told me, I mean, Google to me was like, oh my God, Google to me was Shambhala, right? Like Google was like, wow, what an amazing, inspiring company and the founders. And I was so inspired by the internet. So when I was creating all of these things, OkiWiki and Native Smart, which you don't know about, which is also a really exciting thing, you know, the internet was still this really exciting place. And I really started the hard preparation for creating these things 10 years ago. And if you would have told me that the internet would be in the place that it is now, I wouldn't have believed you. So I was serendipitously this whole time designing solutions for problems that I wasn't even aware that we were going to have. And so me being in this place right now as an entrepreneur and as essentially an inventor that has created two things that serendipitously do offer a very practical solution for every single problem mentioned in the social, social dilemma at this moment in history is, you know, that's the conclusion of this serendipitous journey. So now I find myself having to go through like just harrowing adventure after adventure, trying to get these things launched and created, now find myself at the perfect moment in history where everyone wants something like this right now. And I feel very humbled by that. I feel that I really just want to do really, really good work with this moment and focus on it because I feel that this is an extraordinary moment for me to make this contribution that I really have wanted to make my whole life. And while I thought I was failing my whole life, right? Like it felt like, oh my God, I have failed a hundred percent of the time. And here I am. Like that whole bloody mess of an experience that took 20 years of forming is now primed in this moment. And it's really beautiful. It's really amazing. Even this conversation with you, you chose this year to reach out to me and have this conversation. And you didn't know about OkiWiki or any of this. Like what made you say, hmm, maybe... I should have Rome on my serendipity podcast, right? So even you reaching out, this is the first time I've ever talked about this experience like publicly. Uh, so this is me talking about this experience some 20 years later. And by the time this podcast is up, AkiWiki will probably be online. So this, it's wonderful. It's, it's wonderful, this trail of serendipity. Well, I think it's awesome that a person with a theater background who's very eclectic and has written now gets to see the muse working in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, um, it's pretty special, especially because this time in my life, you know, obviously a lot older, a lot mature and don't give a shit right about a lot of, a lot of unnecessary stuff. And so my relationship now with this serendipity, right, with this uh, synchronicity trail is so beautiful and like so rich. And it's something that I have a lot of intimacy and trust in now. You know what I mean? So you should not be able to predict Wiki from my life. Like it doesn't make sense that that would emerge in my life. So 
I feel I did not create OkiWiki. I designed the platform and I don't mind taking credit for that, right? Because I worked really hard at design. So I don't mind taking credit for the design, but I did not create OkiWiki. I know I did not create. I was just in the right place at the right time. And there was wonderful people around me having conversations and bringing OkiWiki into those conversations without them knowing it. That is how OkiWiki came about, right? It was me discovering something, not me creating something. Right. Yes. And I think that's a good way to wrap it up. Uh, Synthesizing all of this is I think that, you know, you could say that you are not the person to be the vessel for the muse to work through in this, but you were because of your eclectic background. You're open to this. You like engaging in conversations. You were seeing the thread as it was pulling you through. You were just the right person to then say, all right, this is important to me. I'm going to do the work. You took the harder path of figuring out how to make it happen. And you should be rewarded for that, even though no one can explain where the muse comes from or why you. All this left to do is to say thank you for sharing your story with us and your time and that we will definitely have links to everything that you've talked about in the show notes. And I look forward to 2021 now based on talking to you about all this. I know it's, you know, it's really exciting. Lauren, thank you. Goodbye. This podcast is the first time I have publicly talked about this. Well, get ready for many, many more because it's going to happen, man. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. And we'll look forward to AkiWiki in 2021. Hey, Revelers, thanks for sticking to the end. And I think after hearing all this, if you don't feel like you've been on an LSD trip, um, (laughs) you should maybe get yourself checked out. (laughs) I don't know if that's a good segue or not to my sponsor being betterhelp.com. That's better H-E-L-P.com. But counseling, therapy, If that's the right thing for you, check them out. You get a discount if you use the code that's on my website. And there's like over a million people just using BetterHelp to get some help because we're still suffering from, well, not just 2020, but before. To be fair, it started a long time ago. But I think if you think back through this last hour that you spent with Rome and myself, you'll realize that it's okay to have a lot of interests in a wide variety of things and be eclectic and to be still searching no matter how old you are. And it is important to not say, I can't do it. I don't know the technology. It's not my background. And to just say, you know, I've heard all these stories about Lincoln trying and trying and trying again and finally getting in the office or I've heard about people who finally have a breakthrough in whatever their technology is at like 50 plus years of age, and maybe uh, maybe have some self-examination time and think, what do, what do I want to do with my life? What kind of crazy, mad scientist stuff is there still out there for me? And then go get it. And if 
you want to explore what Rome is talking about more, of course, check out the links and see how his new paradigm changing approach to conflict resolution has helped for you and how you can apply it to your relationships. And maybe we can finally become the kind of people who knows how to talk about the hard things in a way that causes understanding and solutions and not just division. So that's my hope for you listeners. That's my hope for all of us. And thanks so much for listening and being a reveler. (laughs) 